Our scripture reading today is found in Acts chapter 17, verses 10 through 15. The brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea, and when they arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue. Now these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Many of them therefore believed, with not a few Greek women of high standing as well as men. But when the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the word of God was proclaimed by Paul at Berea also, they came there too, agitating and stirring up the crowds. Then the brothers immediately sent Paul off on his way to the sea, but Silas and Timothy remained there. Those who conducted Paul brought him as far as Athens, and after receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him as soon as possible, they departed. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Brothers and sisters, good morning. My name is Jeff Leo, and I am the pastor for college students and young adults here at Lake Avenue Church. And uh, it's a pleasure to get to work with Chris and his wife, Allie, in the College and Young Adult Fellowship, and all my buddies down here who are my cheering section today. Uh, if you're wondering, if you're a young adult and you're wondering, where are all the young adults? They're right down here this morning, so you can come find us later. It's my privilege to bring to us the Word of God, and as it was read and it is preached, our prayer this morning is that God would illuminate our hearts and minds by His Holy Spirit. I love doing this job, I love coming to speak to you, and every time I do, you may notice certain themes. In fact, last night somebody said, Jeff, I was worried that uh, you weren't going to talk about your kids but then you did later, so I will later. So I think people are getting to know me a little bit. And uh, if, you, if you've seen me preach before, one of the things that you probably know is that I am a die-hard Michigan Wolverine. I see one hand right there. All right. Any other hands? I love the school that I went to. I talk about it all the time. I have a big flag in my office. I met my wife there. So many great things happened to me there. So you probably wouldn't have guessed that my first visit to the University of Michigan was so terrible, I told myself I would never go back. I've got to explain to you what happened, and I've got to tell you why, but for that you're going to have to imagine, if you will, that I'm 15 years old, this is my first visit to Ann Arbor, 15 years old. I'm from the country. Okay, I know nothing about a very progressive city like Ann Arbor. I am young, naive, tender. I'm a goody two-shoes. And I go to this city uh, for more sophisticated folk than I. I'm going for summer camp. What kind of summer camp? I will not tell you because it's too embarrassing. I go there for summer camp, and I arrived there a little early. I don't know why my ticket was early, but uh, my parents worked it out that since I was going to be early, I would stay with the uh, son of a family friend. Now, this young man was a college student, so he was much older than I was. In fact, he was getting ready to graduate. So imagine his excitement hanging out with a 15-year-old, probably not very eager I was placed in his home just for one night, for before the camp began. And it is everything that you can imagine it might be 
based on the movies that you've seen involving college. I go into a house, you can rent whole houses there, and you've got to stuff them with as many uh, guys as you can. So as I walk in, there's this distinct smell. Smells like guy. Uh, I grew up in a very pleasantly fragrant home, and so this was strange to me. But it's not just that. Um, I think when I walked in, these guys saw an opportunity to toy with a 15-year-old. They weren't terribly hospitable. I mean, the guy that was in charge of me, he was fine. He kind of left me alone. But the other guys, they thought it would be fun to ask me to do some things that 15-year-olds are not allowed to do by law. Hey, will you go and do this for us? Well, you know, naive and tender and uh, eager to please as I was, I thought, well, maybe I should. You know, if I just do it, maybe they'll like me, leave me alone, you know, that, that kind of thing. They were toying with me. But it's not just that. They stuck me in a room all by myself, never to talk to me again, except for one time. So it's late at night at this point, and I'm just kind of trembling because uh, they're watching movies that 15-year-olds have no business watching. In fact, 25-year-olds have no business watching. They're, wa- they're doing things that no one has any business doing, and I'm upstairs doing what a good Oklahoma boy knows how to do. I sit by the bed with my Bible, and I read, praying for my own safety, so there I am sitting by the bed praying with my Bible open and one of the people whose names I don't I never got to know and I I only remember his his face uh, he walked in and said I think he just opened the door just to get my gourd he, he opened it peeked in oh you're reading the Bible aren't you do you know it's full of errors he shut the door and he walked away I just lost my piece of paper They thought it would be fun to toy with me. Isolated in my room. No one to express interest in who I was. Mocked for my belief in Jesus. But it doesn't end there. That was just the beginning of my time in Michigan. I would discover while I was at camp that week that I was lactose intolerant. you got to understand, a 15-year-old discovering that he shouldn't have ice cream... I mean, it's, it, it hurts right here, right? But it's not just that. I mean, I, I experienced my first heartache at camp. I mean, it was just a hard time. Now, before you go and tell yourself that all your worst feel, fears about public schools have been confirmed, you need to know that God brought me back there three years later, even though I told him I would never go back. You need to know that I met him there at the campus of the University of Michigan in a powerful way. Ways that have led me here at this time, for this moment. Ways that would lead lead me to my wife. And that I believe everyone should learn the Michigan fight song. (laughs) I love that place because I saw the seeds of the gospel planted and come to fruition through the people there who loved and served Jesus. And I see that at almost every campus I go to. It was just that my experience was all about the way I was being received into that new place. And the same was true 
for the Apostle Paul in Acts chapter 16 and 17. It was all about the way that he was welcomed as he went from new city to new city. Did they express interest in him? Did they isolate him? Did they mock him? Did they beat him? Well, you remember from a few weeks ago how this all starts. Paul is sitting there in Troas and he receives a dream. There's a man from Macedonia beckoning to Paul, come this way because we need help. So he crosses the strait and he goes into this region called Macedonia. First stop, city of Philippi. Do you remember what happens there? It starts out really bad. He gets beaten physically and thrown into prison. Terrible start. I can imagine the Apostle Paul thinking to himself, well, God, you gave me this dream. You told me to go to Macedonia and this is what it's going to be like. A warm welcome indeed. Well, he goes on. He goes from um, Philippi to Thessalonica and he preaches just as he does everywhere else. He goes into the synagogue. He preaches. He says, Jesus is the Messiah, the one that we've all been waiting for. And some people believe, but some people decide, I'm going to start a riot. And we're going to chase him out of here. Let's find him. Let's beat him. But they couldn't find him there in Thessalonica, so they did the next best thing. Let's take his host, Jason. He's staying at Jason's house. Let's get him, drag him out to the square, make him pay a fine for public disturbance, and then basically chase Paul and Silas out of there. It's not going well, but I... I guess at at least they weren't beaten this time. He goes from Thessalonica to Berea in our passage this, this morning. But he doesn't go alone because the Thessalonian Jews are chasing him. So at least he wasn't beaten this time. And this time when he preaches the gospel, some people believe. And so he's escorted, not so much chased, but Paul himself is escorted out of Berea. Next stop, Athens. It's getting a little better. In Athens, it's such a philosophical town, you can say whatever you want, and the folks will be, they'll say something like, this man is a fool and a babbler, but they won't beat him. Other people will say, we will hear you tomorrow. It's kind of like Ann Arbor, if you ask me. He only stays there for a little while. From there he goes to Corinth, where Luke records he stays for a year and a half. Nice, quiet, calm Corinth where he gets to teach for a long time. The same message. And so you see that in every city he goes to, the issue is how he and the gospel message are received by the folks who are there. Each time people come to, to know Jesus, but each time there's a different response. In this passage here in Berea this morning, Luke is showing us two very different postures with which to approach the word of God. And he teaches us this one simple lesson, that those of us, you and I, those of us who trust that this is the Word of God, when we look at it intently, when we listen to it attentively, we can experience the presence of Jesus through the Word of God. We can experience the presence of Jesus through the Word of God. I don't know how you think about the faith. I don't know how you live the faith. But what this passage teaches us, it is through the Word of God, empowered by the Spirit of God, whom we pray would come be with us now to teach us this Word, that we experience the presence of Jesus. Sometimes, first examining the way of foolishness can help illuminate the path of wisdom. So let's turn to the second half of this passage in Acts chapter 17. 
It starts in verse 13. It says, But when the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the word of God was proclaimed by Paul at Berea also, they came there too, agitating and stirring up the crowds. And we can just stop there. The Jews from Thessalonica embarked on a two-day chase from Thessalonica to Berea. They were committed to making sure that they would agitate and uh, prohibit people from hearing the message that Paul and Silas had to teach. They were so committed, and we have to understand why. Now, we know that they did the same basic thing in Thessalonica. So when you go back to chapter 17, verse 5, and look for a reason, what was their motivation for doing something like this? Luke gives us one word. And most likely in your translation, in chapter 17, verse 5, you have the word jealous. Now, what were they jealous of? I want to tell you this morning, it was not that Paul and Silas had taken their ball and that they were jealous because they didn't get to play. It was not that they were gaining a better following. It was not that they were getting more attention. It was actually something that I wish more of us would display because the Greek word is zelos, from which we get zealous. It was more that they cared deeply about what? About the honor and reputation of their God, Yahweh. They cared that he would be represented correctly. They cared that the word would be taught correctly. And it couldn't possibly be taught correctly by Paul, this infidel. I wish that sometimes I cared as much about the reputation and honor of our God as these folks did. That I would embark on a two-day chase to make sure that the word of God is rightly divided in every pulpit. I wish I had that zeal sometimes. But we know, and what we learn from this section that Luke is trying to tell us, is that our zeal for God can sometimes be misdirected and misplaced. Our zeal for God can be misdirected and misplaced. How does this happen? Let's take a look. In Philippi, in Thessalonica, and here in Berea, Luke makes what can only be a deliberate choice to include specific details about who it is that's coming into the community of faith. There were unnamed Jewish converts that were coming out of the synagogue, but Luke decides, I'm going to take the papyrus space and I'm going to use the ink, I'm going to spend the money to make sure everyone knows who else is coming into the family of God. Who is it? Do you remember? In Philippi, first city, it's Lydia. A wealthy woman who deals in purple cloth, purple being the color of wealth and luxury. She's probably a wealthy woman. She becomes to us an exemplar of faithful reception of the gospel and their servants. In fact, she stoops so low as to ask, Paul, Silas, if you think I've done right in my response to Jesus, would you just come have dinner at my house? Lydia. In Thessalonica, what does Luke say? It was Greeks, but also leading women. That's right, leading women. There's no other way to translate that. They, they, these women were leaders, and they would come into the family of faith. In Berea, here in this passage, again, it was Greek women of prominence, and also some men. Let's put it all together. Somehow, these people coming into the community of believers, provoked 
the jealousy, the zeal for the honor of God, the anxiety about whether God was being correctly represented. It provoked the Thessalonian Jews. And Luke lays it out somewhat plainly. It's not that just Greeks are coming into the fellowship. He's been dealing with that in chapters 1 through 11. But now he adds another dimension. The problem is women. What happens when the Spirit comes? Well, here in Acts, everyone gets the gospel. And I mean everyone. Somehow, this is a problem for the Thessalonian Jews. Let me put it this way. In a sense, the Thessalonian adversaries were more concerned about who was receiving the message than what the message was in the first place. The Thessalonian adversaries were more concerned about who was receiving the message than what the message was at all. Does this happen to us? I will be the first one to admit that it happens to me. Sometimes I don't care what you have to say. I remember more than a handful of times, I remember more than a handful of times, getting in long, heated arguments with family members and loved ones, and at some point along the way, I don't know if you've experienced it like I have, I will learn that I am wrong. But it doesn't matter. I'm going to keep arguing anyway. I've done that more times than I like to admit. Well, maybe it's not as dramatic. Maybe you're a much more honest person than I am. But I I still think all of us do this one thing that psychologists call attitude inoculation. Attitude inoculation. And it works just like it sounds. So it's it's like a vaccine where you introduce like uh, some inactive virus into your system and your body defeats it. So if you want to make sure that you have a certain attitude towards a particular issue, all you need to do is to introduce weak arguments that you can beat easily. And when you are confronted with strong arguments, it actually doesn't matter what the strong arguments are. Your inoculation predisposes you to just continue believing what you believe. That's kind of how it works. Parents, are you here? We do this with our children, but we do it on purpose. We want to prepare them from what comes ahead and to inoculate them from certain dangers, don't we? So, this could be a good thing. It could be a bad thing, but it could be a good thing. At the end of the day, if you're inoculated, by definition, you are not open. If you are inoculated, you're not open. And in the case of Saul before he became Paul, and in the case of the Thessalonian adversaries who were chasing Paul, they were inoculated against what God was doing in their very midst. That is the danger of inoculation. They resisted God himself. This can happen when we inoculate ourselves. We can become blind to what God is doing. I want to illustrate how this works in our family household. This is where I'll talk about my kids. So, in our house, we don't have cable TV, and we don't have an antenna. So all we do is streaming video for a small fee every month, which means that we don't have commercials. When I was growing up, my parents taught us, don't listen to that commercial, it's just a trick for kids. It's just to trick kids into buying stuff. So my kids have not had to deal with that kind of, you know, uh, people competing for their attention with fancy sugary cereals. We don't eat sugary cereals, which I think is nice. Um, But sometimes, 
I'll ship the kids off to my parents' house. My parents have an antenna. So what happens when they come back from my parents' house? Well, let me tell you. I'll show you. This happens. Maybe you've seen these products. I remember seeing them, and having been inoculated, I just let the commercial go by. But my kids, no. Who, who doesn't need slippers whose ears will pop up with every step? Who doesn't need a pillow that you can't actually put your head upon, but will light up for you different colors and project the stars on your ceiling? I mean, you're asleep anyway. Who's looking at the ceiling? I, I don't understand these kinds of things. I still think they're a trick for kids. Although they're kind of cool, I guess. That's what happens when you're not inoculated. But what happens when you do inoculate yourself and your children? By definition, you're not open. So that's just how it works. I think this is the way we make decisions. I'm not condemning it. It's just what we do. But I think we do another thing, too. We make decisions about who we're going to hang out with, our affiliation, what groups to belong to, and even what we're going to believe based on who already is there. Maybe you've experienced this. I've heard a philosopher describe our appeal to expertise this way. He said, if I'm riding the bus and someone comes to me and says, Sir, did you know that the distance from the earth to the moon is 238,900 miles? I would likely ignore that person. If that person happens to be my mother, and she says to me, Son, did you know that the distance from the earth to the moon is 238,900 miles? I would say, Mom, where did you get that? But if my mom happens to be an astrophysicist and says to me, Young man, did you know that the distance from the earth to the moon is 238,900 miles? I would say, Yes, ma'am. Doesn't it depend on... Who is there and who is speaking? Well, who was Paul? Walking in a strange place, very few credentials, with a very strange message that God came to us in Jesus, that he hung on a cross and died and rose again on the third day, and he is the Messiah. It's a very strange message. Who is he? It's a miracle that anyone believed him at all. Isn't it true that this is how we join groups? Two, based on who's already there. I get several emails every week asking me, Jeff, Pastor Jeff, if, uh, uh, is the college and young adult pl- uh, group a place where I'll find people that I can kind of get to know and, and a group that I can belong to? This is, this is just how we make decisions. And more and more, and I find this very interesting, and I, I actually like this, people who have made Lake Avenue Church their home will come to me and say, I was actually looking for a m- more diverse experience than where I grew up. I tend to think that's a good thing, but I know that by its very nature, just, in, just like inoculation, that when we do things like this, by definition, we can become closed to what God is doing in our midst and where he might want to lead us. Not sure exactly what it was for the Thessalonian adversaries, why they chased so diligently. It might have been because they were afraid of something about their way of life being lost, Perhaps they were afraid of losing their power or their influence or their comfort in their religious community. And these things, brothers and sisters, are not ours to hold on to to begin with. For after all, if Jesus did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself into the form of a servant, then neither is authority, influence, or comfort ours to grasp. 
for our own purposes. These things close us off and cause our zeal to be misdirected and misplaced. This is the way of foolishness. But there's another way. And for that, we turn to the beginning of the passage. Acts chapter 17, verse 10. I hope you're still there. Openness to the Word of God is like a welcome mat for God in Jesus Christ. And you see how this happens here in verse, let's go to 11. Now these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica because they received the Word with all uh, eagerness. This word received is the important word. All throughout the Gospel of Luke, when you look at how he talks about things being received, he's actually talking about how Jesus was welcomed into a home, how the disciples were welcomed into homes. And when Paul talks about reception, when he talks about being received, he's usually talking about the way the Gospel was received. He'll say something like, I thank God for the way that you received the Word for what it is, the Gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. It's all about the reception. It's all about the welcome. And I think that what Luke is doing here, very intentionally, he's blurring the lines as to whether or not we are welcoming a thing or a person. Because you see what the Berean Jews did. When they looked into the Word finally, they found Jesus there. They welcomed Christ Himself. That's what I believe happened there. So this reception, this welcome mat that we roll out for the Word of God is all about our posture before His Word. How do we approach it? Is it a dry text? Is it a chore? Is it something that's just so confusing you don't know what to do? Or is this our chance to encounter the living God in Jesus Christ by His Spirit? One of my favorite hymns, the first stanza, goes like this. When I am laden with guilt and full of fears, I fly to thee, my Lord. And not a glimpse of hope appears, but in thy written word, the volumes of my Father's grace does all my griefs assuage. And I behold my Savior's face in every page. This is what awaits those of us who roll out the welcome mat to encounter the living God when we open up the Word of God. But it's not just our posture. There's also, quite frankly, a right way to do it. Luke has for us, I think, at least four principles for how we are to study the Bible. First one is this. You ask questions. I want you to think of it this way. If you were being hospitable, if you were receiving a guest, and you stuffed him in a room, and you didn't talk to him, what message does that communicate? If you had no questions for this person, it communicates one thing, you are not interested in who he is. Brothers and sisters, I have sat with many church-going Bible students who have no questions for the Word of God. And that thoroughly vexes me. I'm thoroughly confused because I have so many. What did you mean? What do you want me to do? Who are you? What are you doing in the world? Is this something that I'm supposed to do? How am I supposed to feel about this? Why did you do that? How could you? So many questions. You can ask all of those because God is not afraid of your questions. Number one, ask questions. That's what the Berean Jews did. They said, is this true? Is Jesus really the Messiah? And they looked, they searched in the law and the prophets 
And they found that it was. They encountered Jesus himself. Number two, they did it together. Study together. My friends, do you study alone exclusively? I mean, it's one thing to read your Bible by yourself devotionally, but when you study, have you only done so alone? Are you on your own? Or do you have the benefit of laughing together, crying together, and sharpening one another in the Word of God as you ask each other questions that you wouldn't have asked if you were by yourself? Are you hearing perspectives that you wouldn't have heard if you were by yourself? We study together, especially on difficult ethical questions which are rising more frequently and that our church will be facing squarely. The task is not to search the scriptures so that we can issue a policy statement for our church. Rather, the task is to sit with God in the word so that he might lead us together. That is our task. Ask questions. Study together. Number three. You go to the source. Chances are, if you grew up in the church, you grew up in what I'm going to call an answers culture. So many times in Sunday school and from the pulpit, our job is to give you answers. So you have your favorite pastor, you have your favorite devotional, you have your favorite apologetics book, and you're ready to pass that out at the drop of a hat. You've got quotes ready to go. But what I have found from a decade of college and young adult ministry is that teaching students to actually search the scriptures for themselves will get you way more mileage in your relationship with God, in your walk with God. You will go so much further. In fact, one of the ways that I do this, I love to ask folks, if someone were to ask you, sometimes it's a skeptic, sometimes it's a child, if someone were to ask you how we, why we believe in, pick something, baptism. Why we believe in baptism. Where would you take them in God's word? Now, let me be clear. I'm not trying to create a super class of Bible trivia nerds and send them out like an army to no purpose. That's not what I'm trying to do. Rather, I think Luke is trying to instruct us that we fly to the word for all our questions. And we do so together, not alone. So many people have come into my office and said, you know, they just told me to read my Bible and I find nothing there. The Bible has no answers. It doesn't work that way, my friends. You study it together. Come study it with me. Let's do coffee. We'll look at it together. That's how it works. We do it together. In fact, as a theologian, one of my commitments is to what is called the doctrine of the clarity of Scripture, which basically means that you don't need superpowers in order to understand the Word of God. Not that doing so, not that reading all these obscure historical and cultural facts is easy to do. Not that you don't need training. You do. You need all those things. But it doesn't require some kind of secret skill that you acquire in seminary. They don't actually teach those kinds of classes. I never took one anyway. No, rather, the Word has come to all of us for all of us. And if we study it together, we all encounter Jesus together. Ask questions. Study together. Go to the source. And lastly, you're not doing Bible study right if you don't obey. Obedience. This one should be obvious to us. You might have said, well, I obeyed that one time long ago when I uh, asked Jesus into my life. 
But that has never been the Christian spiritual life. No, rather, obedience is a continual openness before God to say whatever you want, whatever you say. Back at Michigan, when I was uh, doing analytical chemistry, for our final project, we had to measure some concentration of some chemical. And analytical chemistry is all about how you measure stuff. And my lab partner and I turned to one another after we received our calculations, and we just cracked up. We cracked up. Because it turned out, our results were all over the place, and we were forced to write down in our lab notebooks that we were going to turn in that we had over one million percent error. <laughs> we didn't do very well in that class, but we were honest, and we wrote down whatever the data said. Well, thankfully, when it comes to the Word of God, It's not a report card that's coming, but it is a radical reorientation of your life, a complete redirection. And this can happen over and over again if you are open, not inoculated to the Word of God. You can have an incredible experience. In fact, one of the things that we do here at Lake Avenue Church is we ask you for 7,500 hours. And it's not because we're trying to create a super class of do-gooder Christians here at Lake Avenue Church, but rather because we see this as the natural, simple outworking of the sweeping testimony of the Scriptures that His people are helpful servants to their community seeking the welfare of the city. That's why we do this. Not for fun. Out of obedience. So that's us. But I think the most beautiful part of this this passage is actually verse 12. Verse 12 says, very simply, Many of them therefore believed. This has been happening for centuries, brothers and sisters. Over and over again, people encounter the Word of God and they have an experience with God Himself. Take, for example, Augustine of Hippo so many centuries ago. He's sitting in his garden, grieving about his own sinfulness, incapable of doing anything, and he hears in the distance children playing and singing a song he had never heard before. They sang, take up and read, take up and read. He interprets that in his mind, and he says, oh, I left my Bible over there from, by my lifelong friend Olypius. And so he writes down in his confessions, I quickly returned to the bench where Olypius was sitting, for there I had put down the apostle's book, that is Paul, when I had left there. I snatched it up and I opened it. And in silence I read the paragraph on which my eyes first fell. He did one of these. I don't recommend that method. But it worked for our friend Augustine, and this is what he found when he landed on Romans 13, 13. Don't participate in wild parties and getting drunk. Well, it goes on. Or in adultery and immoral living, or in fighting and jealousy. Apparently he needed that word. But it goes on. But let the Lord Jesus Christ take control of you, and don't think of ways to indulge your evil desires. It's a strange passage to land on, but this is his thought about it. I wanted to read no further, nor did I need to. 
For instantly, as the sentence ended, there was infused in my heart something like the light of full certainty and the gloom of doubt vanished away. He encountered the living God by opening the Word of God. This was true for our brother John Wesley as well. Now, John Wesley, famous pastor, hymn writer, many of our songs come from him. He was a nightmare of a pastor, if you ask me. He was a pastor that discovered he had no faith. I can't imagine standing here before you doing that. In fact, I think at some point he said, preach faith until you have it, because once you have it, then you'll preach it. I don't, I don't like that very much. But one evening, I went very unwillingly to a society in Aldersgate Street where one was reading Luther's preface to the Epistle to the Romans. Romans again, something about that. About a quarter before nine, while he was describing the change which God works in the heart through faith in Christ, I felt my heart strangely warmed. I felt I did trust in Christ, Christ alone for salvation, and an assurance was given me that He had taken away my sins, even mine, and saved me from the law of sin and death. Have you ever felt your heart strangely warmed when you read the Word of God? I know that encountering God through the Scriptures has been my experience as well. The first time I read the book of Amos, I was sitting in inner city Detroit, and God came to me, bold face, saying that the way you conduct yourself with regard to justice and the way you worship me are tied together. When He said to Israel, Get away from me with your songs because you do not do justice. I was confronted with a new truth. My mind exploded to our responsibility to do right by our city. When I first read the Sermon on the Mount, I was preparing to preach it. It was the first time I had looked at it in a serious way. And when Jesus says, you should be more willing to cut off your arm and pluck out your eye than to cause your friend to stumble or to cut him off. You should be more willing to cut yourself off than to cut off people who are precious to God. My mind exploded and all of a sudden my heart became alive to a love for my brothers and sisters in the body of Christ. I grew up one way and discovered through the Word of God that He is alive and active and wants to redirect my life. And He wants that for you too. He wants to take us together and bring us somewhere. It's called following Jesus. And that's what we do when we open up, read attentively, study together, ask Him questions, wrestle together. Some of you have never had this experience. And as long as it is called today, the Bible says, today is your day. Your day to make a decision to begin pursuing this God who reaches out to you, who has given to you His own word, His message to you about who He is and the life that He is creating for us all. If that's you, today is your day. In the end, it is not enough to be able to quote Scripture. It's not even enough to quote it correctly and in context. It's not even enough to apply it correctly. The promise of knowing the Word of God is knowing the God of the Word Himself. 
God and Jesus Christ, if we believe that the Bible is breathed out by God Himself, then this is not an intellectual exercise learning about an historical character or historical characters and the principles by which we need to lead our lives. It's far from that. This is a spiritual engagement with the risen Lord Jesus who didn't get up out of the grave for nothing. He came out of that grave in order to send the Spirit to be with us as we open His Word and look into it together. Do you realize that that's what all that was for? Not just so that you could make a one-time decision? It's our spiritual engagement with the risen Lord Jesus through the Holy Spirit whom the Father and Son have sent for just this purpose that we might know Him through His Word. That's why we do this. And that's why we preach from the Bible every week. And that's our promise to you. So that all of us would engage with the Lord Jesus as we read. That we would all encounter Him and His deep love for us. Would you join me in prayer? Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for being the speaking God. You spoke the world into existence, and then you spoke of your love for us. Your own Son, Jesus Christ, He is the Word incarnate for whom we give thanks and praise. Lord, if there's anyone here who has yet to encounter your goodness and your deep love for us, I pray the next time they open the Word, however they do it, whether they flip it open or they study with others, that they would encounter you there. We know that those of us who trust that this is your Word, we can encounter you here. Be faithful to us this way. Come and meet us as we study your Word. God, we pray this together in Jesus' name. Amen and amen.